Welcome to DBPA, the Drunk Bitches Podcast. I'm Jamie. And I'm Sarah. Each episode, we pair a wine with a topic where you get more lip with each sip. So let's get started. But first, pass the wine, bitch. Hi, everyone. We have a very special guest today. Burke O'Halloran from Iconic Wines is on with us, and we are so excited to have him. He has sent us a couple wines here that we're going to try out, and we love, love, love the labels. They've got... It looks like superheroes, but I know Burke is going to kind of get into that with us. But we are, will be drinking today his Heroin 2018 Chardonnay from Santa Lucia Highlands. And then the 2018 Testa Red Blend from Mendocino County. So we're really excited. Say hi, Burke. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> we were introduced to Burke's Wines a while back and we just got really into the labels and what the story was and kind of connected with him and very excited that we have him on today. So, um, Burke, how are you doing today? How are you doing in the in the in this uh, COVID atmosphere that we're in these days? Yeah, we're we're on. Um, we just did the math last night. We're on a, a week eleven of lockdown because the Bay Area went pretty quick. At some point, it just becomes normal, right? Fortunately, uh, wine is ag, so we're considered essential. So I feel like I have the like Corbin Dallas multi pass. Oh, um, nice! But, Little Fifth Element uh, reference there. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I split my time between um, my now bedroom office and uh, the winery. Um, and then we haven't really done anything else. At least I get to go to the winery. Yeah, I think that that's the kind of uh, job that I would really like. <laughs> Not having to talk to anyone. It, it is a little surreal because typically this is um, sales season for us, right? Like we had harvest, like the second half of the year, it gets much more focused on, on picking and production. The holidays are the holidays. No one really wants to talk to you. And then sometime in February... You know, I spend between January through July, I spend probably a third of that time on the road, typically doing wine festivals or oh, um, wow. promoting our wines. Like um, all around the country or? Yeah, I mean, our wines are sold in 36 states now. So, okay. And I found the most effective way to, to tell my stories until this was to do it in person. And now, now I got to do it on podcasts and, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm learning, learning how to do it when I can't get on a plane. It's been an interesting learning curve but it's 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 weird for me because like i said i'm used to living out of a suitcase this time i'm sure it feels good a little good to at least be home a little bit more and maybe you can talk to us a little bit later on in the podcast about some some new ideas and some plans that you have whether it's for iconic wines or otherwise well should we talk about the first wine can you tell us a little bit about this heroin that we're drinking yeah (laughs) heroin with an e right with the female hero Uh, good good distinction (laughs) It's funny. I always tell the story, but um, you know, we started the brand ten years ago, and I was still working at it for an importer based in New York, and so I was back and forth on both coasts. And I was in the middle of Midtown Manhattan, and I was talking to our uh, shipper, and it's like loud, and I'm on the street corner, and I'm yelling, and I'm like, "Great!" So the like the four pallets of heroin will be there next week. And then when I I turned to cross the street, like everyone on the like on the corner was like just glaring at me and I was like, oh, I am definitely on some sort of NSA watch list. Yeah, so right. Hopefully there wasn't like a cop hanging around there. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. No, with an E, with an E. Yeah. That's heroin's the the flagship wine. It's patient zero. He's parlance of our times right now. It was what started the whole thing. So I ten years ago got uh, drunk with the right people and had an opportunity to make some Chardonnay <laughs> with with the right people. Yeah, I made a 
90 cases, four barrels, because I, I figured if I screwed it up, I could drink 90 cases eventually. We ended up flipping and selling it all in like six weeks. And so it was kind of like, oh shit, I guess maybe I should make a little more. And that was kind of how That's it, it very impressive. So it's, yeah, so heroin's been the, the wine we made the longest. And I would say it's the one I'm probably best known for in terms of, especially in the like fine wine world, like high-end restaurant kind of thing. Yeah. Um, now, did you, so you said you made this, it's, it's the, is this the 10th? Vintage, maybe not the tenth vintage. I can't do math and vintage wise. But you guys have eighteen, so this would have been the the ninth vintage. We started okay. two thousand ten pick, so that's one the zero, right? right. So you just add one to each one. So and then we have nineteen in barrel, which was okay. my tenth harvest, and that'll get bottled here in about six weeks. Does it age on the lees at all? Yeah, heroin has kind of jumped a little bit. It's all single vineyard. It used to be all Sonoma Coast. I kind of found a few different sites. I have some. Almost everyone I do is single vineyard, but this this vineyard has changed sources uh, a few times. But currently, it's all from Santa Lucia Highlands, uh, a vineyard called Escol, which is a really cool site. Same thing, getting drunk with the right people. I got into this site. Um, it's owned by a guy named Scott Caraccioli. They are one of the closest things we have to like all estate method champenoise. Like it's like a grower champagne made in California. It's all vintage dated, four years on the leaves. Wow! Really, really cool project. That's impressive. And so we just basically steal his top block of Chardonnay. I think it's the warmest. So it's all cropped and farmed as if it was going to make champagne-style sparkling wine. So very high acid, really bright. The one thing that we, we let it do is that this vineyard is in that marine layer in the north part of Santa Lucia Island. So it will actually develop a little bit of botrytis. So this has about like 2-3% botrytis in it as well. Is that right? So I am loving that it's like... So at first I got a little banana on the nose, but it is so smooth and I don't take, you know, it's just, it's not like those oaky Chardonnays you think of from California. So I am loving this. It's like, it is just something I feel like this is the perfect day for, you know, we're sitting outside, it's warm and like, I, it's like that creaminess you'd expect from a Chardonnay, but you still have that crisp flavor. Yeah, that, I'm, I'm stoked to hear you say that because that's actually where the name heroin came from other than me being a nerd is that I wanted a wine that was both pretty and powerful. Uh, I love, you know, my background was, was a wine buyer before I became a winemaker and my cellar was always Burgundy and Barolo and these wines that were fun of them. My favorite wines were always really pretty. They were like that kind of classic feminine style and to me those are ones that are more acid driven, more aromatic, but having an opportunity to make wine in California, you know, our, our terroir is power. Like we have rich volcanic soils. We have a lot of sun. I wanted to make something that was stylistically the wines I like to drink, but was true to our site. And so kind of walking that razor's edge of, of aromatic and bright, but still weighty, which is kind of difficult to do out here. That's, that's actually where the name heroin came from. So it started from wine nerdy reasons. And then we went down the, the rabbit hole of putting superheroes on our wine. Yeah, so can you tell us, is the superhero on this wine bottle, what was the inspiration for her? Is it a certain superhero? I know you said the heroin wine that you were thinking as an inspiration, but who's this lady? Yeah, it's funny, you know, uh, the artist never met her, but it kind of ended up looking like my wife, but it's not not inspired by her. (laughs) My God, that's amazing. I think that's really funny. So did you, in terms of, you said it was the artist, so you guys don't do this in-house. How did you select an artist for your labels? I mean, the label is, you know, people's, oftentimes their first impression of a wine. So how did you find the right artist to, to, to make yeah, this label? Yeah, I'm bad at marketing. <laughs> I, um, 
So I, the first year, because I didn't even know if I was going to make a second vintage, right? Like I, I worked in wine distribution. I was helping other winemakers. This opportunity fell in my lap. The, the two winemakers I keep talking about are um, a guy named Steve Mathiason, who's been on like the cover of Food and Wine, was winemaker yeah, yeah, of the year. Yeah. Uh, he's been up for James Beard, like I think twice now. Like So he had this new vineyard, Camaro, which we still work with. And everyone was super excited about that. Uh, like Farnot Roberts, Brock. Um, Abe from Spolian Project, these guys you know, are all winemakers I really respected. And I had an opportunity to buy some of that fruit. And I was like, well, I might as well light a pile of money on fire. I sell wine. I don't know how to make it. And a guy named Dan Petrowski, who is the full-time winemaker at Larkmead in Napa. And he has a label called Masakons, who was also winemaker of the year now. I met all these guys before they were cool. Um, you know, and he's 100-point Parker Wine. You were an OG like, with them? Amazing guy. Yeah, exactly. Um that was my, I was a good talent scout. That was actually, in honesty, that was my job before making a winemaker. We, I worked with this importer. We primarily did Italian wines, but we started to sell and broker California wine um, into the East Coast. And we were a young, small company. We didn't have a big reputation. So I had to look for new brands that were trying to get their name out. So I, in a weird way, I did become kind of a, a winemaker talent scout to like recruit brands for the New York market for a portfolio to sell. And that's super cool. I would say that's if the one thing I'll, I'll toot my own horn on is probably more than half of the winemakers that I found in their first vintage have gone on to become pretty influential out here, which is awesome. That is really awesome. And to hear just sort of like your background, because I think, you know, especially if you created a relationship with them very early on, it's just, I think that it, you know, as you said, you were able to work with them and to learn from them and kind of incorporate some of that little bits and pieces into iconic wines as it is now, right? No, for sure. I, I joke that we, um, I should send you guys some swag. I mean, I started making dogma free wine stickers just because. What does that mean? <laughs> we were wondering what that meant, and that was going to be one of our questions for you. So um, please divulge. <laughs> it's so funny because I've made, so I guess we should talk about that. Like, but I, so I don't own any vineyards. I don't even own a winery at this point, although we kind of were renting a space that we've turned into a winery with a, another winemaker. So I've made wine in seven different wineries over the last 10 years. So custom crushing. So I, I purchase all my fruit. All my fruit is grown by family-owned farms. It's, it, it didn't start that way, but I've learned that you know I want one person, one person to talk to, people I trust. And so I don't have any contracts. Everything's a handshake deal. And then that I bring up fruit into... still these days? I know. It's rare. It's good to hear. It's actually someone... With everything going on, uh, one of my growers sent me a contract this year. And I was like, dude, seriously? <laughs> but I get it. Everyone's a little scared. Um, so I guess between that and working with the European wines and all this, I, in some facilities, there was a facility where I was working that was very, very commercial, very modern production. And there I was like the hippie. They're like, you're not going to put more sulfur in that? Like, you don't want to blend that? Like, like, why aren't you inoculating? Like, why are you doing native ferment? Like, that's dumb. Like, you know, I was like the weird hippie kid. And then the last few years prior to that, I was making um, wine at Pax Mall's place. Um, if you know those, and he's, it, that facility is really cool. It's, it's never allowed any inoculated yeast into it. And um, Jolie Lade um, makes wine there. Um, well, it's Martha Stoutman, who's a big kind of darling of the natural wine movement right now. And over there, I was like the corporate commercial winemaker. They're like, really? You're putting sulfur in your wine? Like, oh, like, and I just felt like there is a lot of dogma in the wine industry right now. Like, oh, like you're forming organic, not biodynamic. Well, like, especially here in the Bay Area, there's just these little mm -hmm. fiefdoms where like it becomes these weird distinctions. And for me, 
it's always been about just making good wine. And so I'm not against using technology where I need to. I think that it's like the food movement did something really similar, right? Mm -hmm. Like we got into the 80s and 90s and into the early 2000s and everyone was like, you don't need whole grain, like just eat Wonder Bread. We put all the nutrients back in and like we found out that that's all kind of bullshit. But we learned a lot of cool things too. So like, you know, I don't want to throw technology away, but I also like, I think that we took kind of technology too far. An analogy I use a lot is um, on, on one spectrum is to me, and I think we did this in Napa a lot, is we, we, made, we started making tuning forks. Tuning forks are really hard to make, but they're like perfect, perfect wine. And it's really boring. Like, I don't want to sit around and listen to a tuning fork. But on the other end of the spectrum is, like, your buddy Joe's experimental jazz band that doesn't believe in rhythm. And you're like, I don't really want to go listen to Joe either. And somewhere <laughs> in between that is, is good music. And right. I think that that's kind of, like... <laughs> I like uh, the music analogy a lot. And I, <laughs> also, it's just... That's, I think what you just described is it can be applied to a lot of settings of life and work it's it's all about balance right you have things at your disposal to use so the technology you can add you know sulfur dioxide etc you can do things in order to you know protect your fruit and make sure that you're able to produce something that's really good that you're proud of but at the same time it sounds as though you're taking more of minimal intervention side of things and so you really just do want to allow the fruit and everything to speak. Yeah, I, I definitely. I mean, one of the things we, we didn't touch on, I guess, but I like, so heroin is all neutral oak. So I, I, I like grapes, not vineyards, not barrels. Uh, I think that that there's that great kind of expression that like the, the, the great vineyard sites have. And, you know, it's, it's a shame to cover it all up. But the funny part is I actually use new oak in my inexpensive wines. So I think they're the ones that need the extra herbs and, and spice. If you kind of think of like Wagyu beef versus like flank steak. Like, you don't want to make blackened Wagyu beef. It was really hard to make that beef. I'm like, what's the point? Or, like, even, like, a Wagyu burger makes no sense to me. Like, it took, you had to rub that cow for months. You had to give it a massage every day to make that meat so tender. Like, you don't want to run it through a grinder. But, like, plank steak, maybe you want a little olive oil and garlic powder and crap like that on there. Like, it still makes a good dish, but you just got to give it a little help. I'm so glad you said that about the un-oak with the Chardonnay, because I'm sitting here drinking it thinking... It's so lovely that it's not full of oak and that the fruit is actually speaking because, you know, you get a Chardonnay and especially not to bash your other California winemakers. Oh, you um, can. But, you know, I think that a lot of them make terrible Chardonnay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like you get a California Chardonnay and you're like, I don't really know what to expect with this. Like, is it going to be like what we're drinking here, which is like you get the fruit, it's fresh, it's versus like this all I'm tasting is oak and butter right? And I know Jamie, that's like, she can say for herself, it's her least favorite wine is like buttery, oaky Chardonnay. So it's yeah. really nice that this is like, not what you're, <laughs> that this is Thank what you. we're drinking. No, it's funny. You know, I, um, I get lumped in with kind of the new California new kids, but like, if you look back, I don't know, you guys know the, the judgment of Paris, that whole tasting in the seventies. So if yep. you, you look at the, the wines that were made, in the 70s. So when they did that tasting in the French and like what really put California in the map, like those wines had a lot less oak in them. They were much lower in alcohol. Um, ironically, I think it's a style that we've come, we're coming back to here in California. But if you look at, um, at this whole kind of conspiracy theory, that's, it starts with Parker, but it's, I don't, I don't want to like blame him entirely. Um, you know, 
Parker, 82 Bordeaux is like what puts Robert Parker on the map. Like, so in, in 85, 86, those wines start to come out. He starts to really gain popularity. He likes big, rich wines. Um, but then in the early 90s, you start to see huge, there's the big economic boom of the 90s, and you start to see hedge funds and, and stuff rolling in and buying up family-owned vineyards here in California. And, you know, hedge funds run by numbers. And so, like, I, I don't think it's just Parker. It was an easy thing for, like, hedge funds to be like, I want this, I want that, or these bigger companies. So they start chasing 100-point wines. And, and then you, that's when you see this big influx of more alcohol, more oak. And then you combine that with with money. I think um, there's a, like this kind of hubris, rich person mentality. If you come from outside of the wine business, it's like I only want the best. I only want that clone. I only want that barrel. I only want that yeast. And that's where like we started the monoculture, and that's where we started to move for tuning forks. I I think that it's really interesting to hear you speak about where you think that some of this originated. And certainly, it's not attributable to just one person or one entity. Yeah, like the expectation. You know, everyone knows. California, and I think when people think of California wine, they automatically think of that big, bold, sometimes outrageous Napa cab. It's like in your face a lot. And I think that, you know, certainly big, bold, powerful red wines, I do like them. And I think that they have a place, but there's so much more, I think, that many people often overlook about something that's a little bit more delicate. And I, I like the way that you describe this particular wine, heroin, as being pretty. I mean, there's something about not having it do all of the talking to you and like taking over and becoming overwhelming. It's something that's there and it's, I think you're meant to enjoy it. And this is a wine that you can really enjoy. One of my favorite producers is Enzo Brezza. He's a Barolo producer. Really cool guy. Like his, his winery's been around forever. He, I don't know if you guys know Bartolo Massarello, but very, very famous Barolo producer. He was actually Bartolo's um, godson, like learned under Bartolo, but inherited his family's uh, he makes incredible. I'm like getting chills talking about it. I don't have to drink roll. But like he has this quote talking about how and it was really, really influential to me. It was the the last glass should be the best glass. Yeah, it was like, when I thought of like the wine experiences that were the most you know satisfying were those when you open that bottle and the wine just keeps getting better and better. And when you pour out the glass glass, you're like you're sad. You're emotionally like oh fuck. I wish we had another bottle of that. Like that was so good. Yes. Like that's what I hope I can convey with my wines. Yeah. Like, I want people to be sad when they pour out the last glass. And it's but, not like, it's not like someone's drinking a bottle of wine to get drunk. Right. I think that's something different. And, yeah, well, and I think it, it goes to wines that are fun to taste versus wines that are fun to drink. Yeah. And I like to drink. So I'd rather make wines that I like to drink than <laughs> taste. Oh yeah. That's no, why, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm gonna, sorry. I'm going to sidetrack, but I have to like, I am so over um, interesting wine is that is like, the scariest thing I can hear in a wine bar when I'm out selling wine, when like the song's like, oh, hey, you got to try this. It's really interesting. I'm like, I, I don't want to, I just want to taste something delicious. I don't want to taste anything interesting. It's going to be weird. It's going to be like way too much skin contact. You're going to make carbonic or like, I don't know. So it's funny because I actually opened a wine last night by a winemaker. I'm not going to say his name. who's was pr- very famous in California. It was one of those things where I was looking for something delicious. Like you're talking. I just was, hanging out, like talking to some friends on Zoom because, you know, that's what we do these days, right? And, um, you know, and I open this wine and I'm like, exactly that. It's interesting. Like, I'm not, but like, do I want to pour myself another glass? Like, I don't really know. Like, maybe I want something else. Like, that's what was going through my head. Like, it's interesting, but you're right. I wasn't like, yes, this is it. 
I, I totally get that. That is like, you know, and I, I like that that's your aspiration. And I will tell you that I could drink this whole bottle right now of Chardonnay, but I'm, I know we've got another bottle to open, so I'm going to try to not get too out of hand so that we can keep this, even though it's the Drunk Bitches podcast, we can keep it, you know, sort of PG, PG-13 maybe. <laughs> so, um, well, yeah. you know, when we can travel again, I want to come out and we'll do a, a Drunk Bitches dinner and then that's where we'll get really rowdy. Oh, yes, let's do it. Or we can come to you too, or both. Cause yeah, please, you're more than welcome. Yeah, we've. it was uh, a year ago that we were wine tasting in California, almost exactly, and now we are, you know, trapped. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so should we move on to this Tesla? Because I'm very excited to open this. Yeah, uh, awesome. Sorry, um, so you totally said Tesla, but I'll take it. Oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> Tesla, yeah. It's, it's, you, Tesla. That's a good, like, it's as sexy as that car, hopefully. Yeah. Um, you know, you're right. I'm so used to saying Tesla. You see that test and you're like, Tesla, Tesla. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, maybe other people have made that mistake too. So I'm reading here 71% Carignan and 29% Zinfandel. Okay. So I don't know if you know my ta- wine tastes, but you don't. So I'm going to tell you, I love Carignan and Zin. Those are like awesome. some of my favorite varietals. So Jamie's nodding her head because she knows I'm like a huge fan of both. Nice. Yeah, yeah it's those funny. Are, I, that, that's like my cab. I think that I, I have had to like come really around on Zinfandel in the last few years, especially because of this project. And, and I think in a big part of it, when we were just talking about like, you know, oaky, buttery Chardonnay, we have just been served up these like fruit bomb, high octane oh, Zinfandels yeah. for, for so long. And what really started to change my, my mind is in... The last few years, I started. Um, if you guys know Winebid, I'm gonna give away my secrets here. But oh, Winebid's no. an online wine auction site, but it's based no. here in Napa. And so when I finally, when Iconic became my full-time job, and I was I was fully focused here in, in California, and my wife and I gave up our little place in Brooklyn, and I had to quit acting like we were school, cooler than we were, and traveling back and forth. Uh, I lost access to a lot of these great wines that I could get in New York, and there's. Now, thankfully, there's, there's some cool spots that have opened, but when we first moved to Napa, there wasn't really a lot of wine shops or things. Is that right? Get wine I wanted. So there's plenty in San Francisco, but that's an hour drive away from us. True. So you so, are in Napa. So I'm in Napa, in town of Napa. And so here's Winebid. And you, know, you didn't have to pay for shipping because I could drive down and pick it up. And one of the cheapest things on Winebid was old California wine. So you could buy like a 30-year-old bottle of Zinfandel for like $9 because no one knew. Well, now, now maybe you've got to pay 15 or something. But like, so we, I started drinking some of these old Ravenswood and like that kind of early 70s stuff. Oh, yeah. And um, like, again, talking about kind of that pre-80s wine and like these wines hold up. There's acid to them. There's structure. Like, I was just like, this is a totally different animal than what we're used to in like grocery store Zinfandel. That's kind of what started to send me down this path. And the other part was I hope to to aspire to make Californian wine, like great Californian wine. And, and I was trying to think of like what is unique to us. And one of these really cool things is, is because of our climate, we can have really, really old wine stuff here that still produces. So this is 85-year-old vineyard. I think I put 75 on the label. Uh, I did bad research. It's actually 85 years old. But yeah, so it's, it's fifth-generation family farm. Uh, all organic farm. This is actually, um, so Testa actually owns quite a bit of land now up in Mendocino and has quite a bit planted, but this is what I'm going to start putting home, the home ranch as the, the home ranch block is the original block of the property. It was cleared out pre-prohibition using horses and dynamite by her great, great grandfather. Maria Testa wow, is still there on the property. Cool. 
like they're awesome. They're like old school Mendo redneck grape farmers. And they're super sweet people. And I just got really lucky to get introduced to them and get a little fruit to be able to make some of this. So, so oh, before I even sip it, I'm just, I'm getting so much violet. I love it. Yeah. It's super floral. Um, yeah. Part of that is uh, two thirds of it is uh, the Carignan is done whole cluster. Okay. Um, so I think that that's a big, you get that kind of stem and that little bit of carbonic, like, anaerobic fermentation that starts in the berry before it gets broken up. Yeah. Um, and just, uh, you know, maybe halfway through ferment, I'll, I'll, I literally put on my like ducky swim trunks and jump up and down on it and break it up a little bit and let it keep going. And like, and then, um, the rest of the like Lucy. <laughs> exactly. The rest of the carnion is in is co-fermented and then it all gets kind of blended back together. Okay. Now, how I, I want to ask you this question. It, this is primarily Carignan, and then you chose to do whole cluster, but the Zinfandel is not fermented in that way. And I was just kind of wondering if you can talk about, like, what drew you to this particular blend? And also, I know as winemaker, you can make all these different types of decisions, but why did you decide to do the whole cluster ferment with the Carignan? specifically yeah um i mean this was the first vintage i ever made from this site so it was a little bit of guesswork you you look and steal inspiration right like so I, you know are you familiar with ridge you know ridge winery yeah um, i think ridge is fantastic there i think if you were going to talk about the history of california wine like in, in with 10 producers like which would have to be one of them and um i really like their old vine block like co-fermented stuff so they they have a lot of vineyards that are um really old this is like old Italian style where you intersperse different varieties among the vineyards and then you harvest everything at once and it all kind of adds that little extra complexity. And so I wanted to do something like that that, was, that is this kind of pre-prohibition. Because if you look at like, especially like pre-prohibition, a lot of our winemaking culture out here was much more Italian than Spanish. Like we had a lot more influences there. And then only after Prohibition, when BV starts to really gain popularity, and particularly with Mandavi, you know, Mandavi thought the best wines in the world were Bordeaux. If you look at our climate, like, we're, we're Mediterranean. We're not Bordeaux. Like, we get 90% of our rainfall in two and a half, three months. So we're, we're much closer to Tuscany than we are to Bordeaux. But yet we have this, this very Francophile Cabernet, Merlot, Chardonnay, focus and so oh for sure i actually never thought about it the way that you just described it it oftentimes is suggested more french style but you're right i mean from the italian climate to what you actually do experience that does make a lot of sense to me yeah well and, and again my my the importer i worked with the guy that started the company was uh, you know the bastianages like mario vitale lydia bastianage all that. so he ran lydia bastianage's wine program for many years and our, our main focus was was italian so i actually the rough duty of going to Italy once or twice a year. It was really Oh terrible. my God, twist your arm. So I think you had this merger of like, you know, our California history, where I make wine, which is great, but this Italian influence, which, which I obviously am in love with. And, and then to bring it to the whole cluster was honestly just to do something a little different, um, add a little aromatic. I like whole cluster. Um, you can't really do it in white wine. Right, like, and I, I made only—I actually exclusively made white for the first five years, um, and then we started the Cabernet. But whole cluster doesn't work well in Cabernet, so this was just the first. Like, I've always wanted to do whole cluster, and this is the first opportunity where I finally could afford to make a wine into my program, where like 
the varietals made sense. I think it's interesting that you said that the first five years, it was all white wine. So it was Chardonnay. Did you go to the Pinot Gris then? No, we made, um, in 11, I made, it's funny, yeah, because I, I now make a, a Pinot Gris, the Shapeshifter, which yeah. uh, I guess I should say fortunately is sold out. I was going to say unfortunately, because I wanted to <laughs> send you a bottle. Um, and we just got a, a pretty nice review on that. But um, so 2011, I made a version of that with Trucho Gris from Peter Finucchi's Vineyard, which uh, Trucho Gris is like, has a, its own crazy history. Like people used to call it Grey Riesling. Uh, and then when you taste it, you can kind of see how people confuse it with Riesling. It has this like you know, crazy, bright, aromatic character. And um, in all honesty, I thought I, I didn't particularly like the wine. I was really frustrated with it. But it was the second year I ever made wine and I was broke. So I had to sell it or I didn't get to make more wine. So I kind of put it out there wincing. Yeah. And then, of course, it was like the most popular wine I've ever made. Like, like Blue oh, Hill was wow. pouring it by the glass, like Wine and Spirits wrote about us and all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, 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 but let's go talk about my Chardonnay that I'm really <laughs> proud of. And everyone's like, yeah, well, you got any more of that Trucho Gris, man? And I was like, ah. <laughs> you're like caught because you're like, yes, I want that, but okay, all right. All right, right. it's got to it's be similar to like, like there's got to be some artists. Like, I always think of music, music and wine, but like, like someone that like, just wrote a song that they hate and it became like a number one hit and now they have to play it at every concert and they're like, I fucking hate this song, but it makes me so much money. Like, I wonder, uh, all of the, every <laughs> concert I go to, I'm like, do you think, you know when people start yelling out in the crowd, like, play, what is it? Yeah. Uh, what's it? Um, I mean, don't you think the Eagles hate Freebird by now? That, thank you. That's exactly Because <laughs> it's the joke, right? Everybody's like, Freebird! And like screaming. And no, they don't want to play it. Nobody wants to play that. Everybody wants to hear it, but it's like they want to play their new stuff. And I think that I, I, I think that that is a great analogy as well. But uh, yes, we we didn't anyways. We didn't make the Pinot Gris till 2018 and all of that. Yeah, 2018 was the first vintage of Pinot Gris. So I, I was. Remember, I don't even remember the original question. Uh, I remembered it was about Pinot Gris, but we started <laughs> talking about Freebird, and uh, and then it just took off from there. But <laughs> I was. Um, I was going to say, you know, I'm so glad you explained your Italian influence here because this wine almost tastes like I was blind tasting. Uh, I would kind of think it might be Italian. You know, it's kind of got this like, it's so nice that it's like, again, it's not this overpowering, bold in your face, California red wine. Like it is just like, I'm just only, feeling like. It's only 12.9 alcohol. I think yeah. the magic of this wine and, and old vine. Um, mm -hmm. I was talking about old, old Vine Carignan and the fact that I was working with this 85 year old vineyard and someone was saying, he's like, you know, for, of all of the grapes that deserve a distinction of old vine, he's like Carignan has to be maybe the top one. He's like, the, the, like when Carignan is young, it's, it's bubblegum, it's very high yield. It's, it's makes these, I guess, I don't, I don't want to say like bad one. It just doesn't make very serious one. Like, it doesn't have a lot of tannin structure things, which isn't a bad thing. You can make a cool, like, great wine with that in, in its own right. But he's like, when, when it starts to get over 50 years, it, it takes on this different character. The yields drop, and when you start to get those concentrations, and, like, it, it's almost like a different grape, like old vine carignan versus young vine. And I bet there um, aren't that many, like, really old carignan vineyards around. It, to me, I mean, it's still, like, a relatively obscure grape, although I'm happy to see more coming out, more varietal specific carignans, or would you say that it's hard to find something that, that, that's that old that's still, that is able to bring on this particular characteristic? 
Yeah, I don't know. Like, it's, like, it's funny. I'm trying to think. Of, I mean, I feel like I don't even know if I can answer that question. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm immediately j- jumping to guys like, I mean, you should get uh, Tegan from Sandlands on, who works a lot with the Historic Vineyard Society and stuff. Like, he he's probably more, like, I just, because like you said, there's just not a lot of, of it. So, you know, I'm, I'm relatively intimate with Testa, like, now making three vintages of it, but, like, mm-hmm. You know, there's there's sites down in Lodi, and, and of the wines I've had from there, it's it's pretty different. I think the other really interesting thing about this wine is um, we haven't really talked about, but it's this is Mendocino, so you're like so Mendocino, and then kind of down into like Contra Costa Lodi are kind of the two main sites to find vineyards like this at this age, because everything else in Napa Sonoma got ripped up and turned into Pinot Noir and Cabernet over the years, and so. You have, to, you have to kind of go to the, the fringes. You have to go to the, the poorer farmers, the poorer areas, the guys that couldn't afford to like to rip, rip up their vineyard and, and plant it. Yeah, that's the only reason that the Trucho the Trucho vineyard is like forty years old. Peter Panucci's vineyard. And the only reason it still exists is because he couldn't afford to rip it up and plant it to something more profitable. Wow. Yeah, and yeah. I I actually don't know that I've ever really seen that. I've seen a couple vineyards, maybe like Buena Vista Winery. I think makes a, a Trucho Gris or. I guess just Trousseau. Is that? Yeah, and that's different. There's a few other sites for Trousseau you can get your hands on. Um, okay. I should plug, uh, but I my, my winemaker roommate is a guy named Mike Lucia, uh, who was the former assistant at Copan um, until oh. I got bought by Kendall Jackson. Um, he makes his own label called Root Down, um, but he makes, under Root Down, he makes an incredible Trousseau that you should get your hands on. I mean, all of his wines are solid, but he, um, that wine is, is really good. Can you say that again? Uh, Root Down. He's a big Beastie okay. Boys fan. Um, ah, okay. I was going to say, I love me some Beastie Boys growing up. <laughs> he's awesome. Um, he and I connected uh, a couple years ago when Kendall Jackson came in and, and bought out Copan, but he had been making the wines there. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with Copan, but I, I always really like his wines. Yeah, I like Copan. I'm familiar with it. It's a, it's a great wine. And so Mike was, was very, very involved in there. I don't know if this is entirely true. I'm pretty sure it is, but he, I don't, Copan used to make a true show, which was totally Mike's program. And since like Kendall Jackson bought it and moved in, they haven't released a true show. And the word on the street is they haven't figured out how to make it since Mike left. That's amazing. He should so, be really proud of that. <laughs> but actually, I mean, what's crazier, like you, you should get him on your, on your podcast. I'll hook you guys up. But he, um, he also just bought an entire Appalachian. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Um, no. So I don't know if you've heard of Cole Ranch. It's good. 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 Yes. Yeah. The smallest ABA in America. Small, yes. Holy um, shit. So, uh, yeah, Mike and with the help of uh, his family just bought an entire ABA. <laughs> it's like it's like 60 acres or something, right? Something. Uh, like it's 60 acres planted. I think the yeah. whole ABA is like 160 or something. Okay. Okay. Um, oh, my God. That, that's amazing. It's awesome. It's um, it, I, I keep joking with him that he, like, bought his own terrarium because it's so remote in this valley. And it's like... He's converting, like, I mean, it's, like, everything's to organic farm. Um, he's, he's, he's moving a lot of it to kind of alpine varietals. So true shows going in up there, like Jacquere is a bunch of really cool, because it's, it's a cold site. Yeah, it's it's going to be, you should keep an eye on it but like that. I, I oh, think that sure. it's be some of the coolest stuff going on in a while. So. Yeah. I'm already hitting him up to get me a little Chardonnay planted <laughs> in there. There's, there's no Chardonnay planted right now, but he's going to graft some over. So hopefully in a year or two, we'll, we'll get to make some full range Chardonnay. Nice. So speaking of projects, do you have any upcoming projects yeah, that you are um, you know, excited about? I know you mentioned you had something on the horizon. I guess two quick 
ones just to wrap up the wine and, and Testa, you know, I, I definitely think old vine sites are, are the things that are like, I don't think I'll make another wine unless it's old vine. And I, I don't, I'm not going to tell you because I don't want to curse myself, that's but on okay. the day I'm going to go walk a hundred year old vineyard. Ooh, that's exciting. I might be able to get a little bit of fruit from, um, I'll tell you the grape later, but it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about that on Monday. Uh, and then the new one is, um, not so new, uh, but a two and a half year process. Um, but vermouth, a brand new brand, brand new project. Um, but we're, we're in a six weeks. We're bottling vermouth that has been over two and a half years of development. And it's all focused on, um, native herbs and spices in North America. So trying to make a like classic style vermouths, but again, you know, that merging that old world, new world, but all based on, um, North American ingredients. Wow. You go from wine to cocktails. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That seems like a a jump, but this is something like you said. So two and a half years in the making. I mean, how do you, man, how did you even just bite the bullet and just like start going? Especially because I think you just said that was more North American style. So what what does that mean for the, for vermouth? I'm not a huge martini drinker, but I have promised Sarah that I will, I will try to become one. I just, I love a good martini. I really do. A good, like strong, not sweet martini. I'm all about it. All right. So, well, the other one you should say, like a good transition for a big wine person is, um, and it's a total like bartender handshake is a, a drink called a bamboo, which is like half vermouth, half sherry. Oh, what kind of sherry? Um, I think that that's after that, it's kind of, that's I think part of the reason. So I think, I'm trying to remember. I'm going to, I'm going to screw this up. I don't remember if it's traditionally dry sherry and sweet vermouth or if it's sweet sherry and dry vermouth, but it's one of those. But like, it sounds like that's kind of morphed into like, as long as it's sherry and vermouth, like yeah. there's even like, there was a whole, um, I don't know if you guys follow punch, but they just had a great article about like it being like this total, like inner circle, like Illuminati, like uh, bartender <laughs> drink. Cause they're guys, everyone has their own expression now. Right. So they'll use like, a little bit of this sherry and a little bit of this sherry oh, and sure. these two vermouths like to all make these little expressions. So, but they're like, they're low ABV. They're super complex, right? Cause you have all kinds of different herbs and spices and, yeah. sherry and like, but, but yes, gin martini. That's probably Oh my, my gosh. Okay. I'm a, I'm a vodka, uh, dirty martini. Like that's my favorite. I've never made one at home though. So I'm excited because like I told you with COVID happening, you know, a lot of us aren't going to the bars and so we're going to learn how to make martinis at home. Yeah, so well, that's kind of how this got started is uh, I was telling you this a little earlier, but um, so we have, we now have two boys. Um, but when my wife was pregnant with our first son, um, it, it felt weird to open and drink a, like a whole bottle of wine at dinner and all of it. Like, and so I, I, Drink it you know, I always oh, liked Manhattans, Negronis, Martinis, which are like were my favorite three. Like I, I think there's certain things are classics for a reason, right? Those drinks are great. So I started making them, and and all three of those drinks have vermouth. And for, I don't for those that you don't know or listen to, like so vermouth is wine infused with herbs and brandy is what all vermouth is. So it's aromatized wine um, that's fortified. And then we oh, so so the new project's called Rockwell, um, like Norman Rockwell. Ooh. company, and uh, yeah, we're very excited that we got that trademark. It's a good name. It's funny; I have no good reason or good background for that name, other than we wrote down like thirty names, and we we're like Rockwell. That sounds awesome. Like, it's it's that's a great name, and I love your <laughs> website. I know it gave to us, and it's an uh, what's the name of the website if people want to check it out? Uh, RockwellVermouth.com. And actually, I that's should it. plug this. So um, 
we will be releasing in August. If I can shamelessly plug, but it, like sign up on our mailing list. Everyone that has signed up for our first release is going to get uh, an offer of an at-cost bottle of sweet and dry as a trial because it's COVID and I can't go to a bar. So we got to get the wine out. I got to get it out there somehow. So um, if you want a super good hookup that literally is what it costs me to make it, sign up and you'll get an offer for a bottle of each to try it. Well, Jamie's already signed up and I'm next. So we're all over nice. it. There you go. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it's, 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 it's been a really cool project. But yeah, so I was making cocktails and like, I, I joke with my wife that I got way drunker when she was pregnant than before, like before. So I was, you know, martinis will hit you way quicker. So you're like, oh, I'll make another one. That one went down quick. And then next thing you know, you're like, you have six drinks in you. And you're like, oh. I think that's why I tend to stay away from mixed drinks sometimes because I'm like, oh, a glass of wine. I can nurse that. This is what I've been, I've been saying this on like various episodes here because I just feel like I have a little bit better control. But man, I mean, cocktails can sometimes go down real easily, especially because they're the small <laughs> glasses, right? Yeah. Now, like I said, I, I actually, I love, um, I don't know. I like low ABV drinks because well, again, I, I like to drink a lot. I mean, I like to eat, I like to drink, I like to, to, to consume, I should say. Um, but like, that's nice. Uh, You're a consumer of all good things, right? Yeah. Um, that's why I had to start running. <laughs> I hated running years ago. Now, now I'm addicted. But like, like at some point, in my, you know, you get you get into your 30s and you're like, like I got to do something. When you start buying bigger pants. Like, you're like, oh, <laughs> I feel you on that. Have you done like the, like the Napa races, like the half marathon? No, I, um, it's funny. It, it, it ebbs and flows, right? Like, like I, I started running probably like five years ago and, um, was pretty into it. And I, I actually got my wife into it. And, but then, you know, we've been building this brand and starting the business and building up the, the new winery space. And I just, my, my athleticness went to shit. And but meanwhile, my way, right? Yeah, exactly. But meanwhile, my, my wife has kept running. Um, so now she smokes me. I can't even keep up. It kills me. Like, cause I was way faster than her for a long time. And now like, like, so she's like, she just ran the Napa marathon. Um, the, the one marathon that we ran together, my goal was for her to not beat me, um, by over an hour. And she beat me by like an hour and 15 minutes. Oh my God. She oh, just wow. like destroyed me. <laughs> um, so yeah, she's a badass. Um, She's a badass um, like your wines, huh? Like these heroines here? Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, actually, uh, I should tell you, this, just to jump back to Testa, it joke is my first uh, supervillain wine. Uh, and I was actually going to ask you, who is this person? Um, uh, and you guys, uh, our listeners will see on the pictures, but who is the lady on the, um, on the Testa, not Tesla, wine yeah. bottle? <laughs> uh, that is uh, Andrew Robinson created that label for me. He's an amazing uh, artist. He, um, I think he won um, what do they call him? an Eisner, which is like the Grammys for comic book artists, um, for a really cool comic called The Fifth Beetle. Uh, that's all about like the Beatles manager. It's like a biography. Basically, I, I work with all published comic book artists to do my labels. Part of that comes into this idea of we make American wine. I tried to make an American, like great world-class wine, but American expressions. I don't say that this is our Burgundy, this is our Chateauneuf. When I was researching, I found came across this quote from a guy named Jack Kirby, who was a co-creator with um, uh, Stan Lee of like Spider-Man, Fantastic Four. He actually created and wrote uh, the original Captain America's, and they, they literally call him the king of comics. So he is like the most influential comic artist. And he was talking about how comic book art is like jazz or rock and roll, like a total American invention. And for me, like 
everything clicked. I was like, man, all of my heroes when I was young wore capes. All my heroes now are winemakers, like American art, American wine. Um, so yeah, I literally uh, went to the, a comic book convention in New York and just walked around hat in hand asking if I could trade wine for art. Cause I, I still have more wine than I have money, but at the time I had all wine and no money. So yeah, and I got really, really lucky. Like two guys took pity on me, also turned out to be, have huge careers and are much more famous than I am now. Um, but a guy named uh, uh, Cliff Chang, who did all the art for Wonder Woman for like seven years. Um, he created the- That's uh, really label. cool. Yeah, and a guy named Tom Feister, who um, known for character creation, like he did a lot of work for um, like the Awesomes on Hulu. He just went to stuff for Rick and Morty. He's done, he's moved more into animation, but for a while he did all of the covers for G.I. Joe forever. He you actually had some created good the people. hero character. I owe my whole career to just getting drunk with the right people at the right time, I think. That is perfect. <laughs> so I also have to ask, all of your corks say Excelsior on them, which I think is awesome. But where did that um, come from? That's only, that's a, an Easter egg for only the 2018 vintage. So that's a pretty interesting, that's a good question to ask. But it's, yeah. um, so um, I, does it say it on the Testa? Do you have 18 or do you have 17? Um, I, it does say it on the Testa and we do have the 2018. So, oh, okay. So that's yeah. all right. Um, so Stan Lee, if you guys know, like, like the creator of like all things like comics. Um, I was going to say the Stan Lee. Yeah, yeah. the Stan Lee. He uh, passed away in 2018, and he used to write these letters to the fans, and, and every letter started out, um, hello, true believers, uh, and then he would end everything and sign it off a letter with Excelsior, like Stanley. And so since he passed away, and it was the first year that we hit 100,000 bottles as a winery, um, and so every 2018 cork, we took all of our branding off of and did a 100,000 bottle salute to the man. I, we didn't really tell anyone about it. We just kind of did it, and, and it felt. That's so heartwarming, and uh, it's like a cool, it's it's a cool little Easter egg. That's I wonder. I mean, just because I think that the labels again are very appealing. They're like the first thing that people look at when they look at wines. But I wonder how many comic book lovers would pop this open and be like, oh, "Holy crap!" <laughs> Damn. Uh, actually, so so at least so far, um, one. I had one person on Instagram send me a photo and be like, you motherfucker. They're like, this is awesome. <laughs> like immediately got it. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, but you know, we're still releasing the wines. I mean, our Michael Mara Chardonnay, which is the, like to me, like our flagship flagship wine, it's the most limited and most expensive wine I make. Um, the 18 will just now get bottled this year and that'll be the last one. And that won't even be released until 2022. So oh, wow. those corks will okay. continue to circulate hopefully for the next 10 years, which will be cool. Um, I should show you the other one because it's sitting here. So I actually, I, I didn't realize I was saying 18. I, I have, I'm drinking 17. So maybe our, the ABVs and things I was saying before didn't make sense. But um, so Testa almost got named Doomsday Device. What? Oh, that, that's hilarious. So, so I, only, I, I only put the vineyard names on things that I think are truly, truly unique. Like I couldn't make that wine from anywhere else. That's actually why heroin has remained heroin and not the vineyard name. As much as I love Eskol and I think Scott's doing amazing things, like I think that I could make that wine from other sites, not every site, but, but certain sites. Yeah. Where like, to me, that the two vineyards, truly labeled single vineyards are Michael Mara, which is our Chardonnay, and then Testa. And I didn't think Testa was going to be that single vineyard until I, I kind of totally fell in love with the site. 
So originally I was going to call it Doomsday Device because I joked it was going to be the thing that took all our money and time and ruined the business. Uh, no, that's COVID. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no kidding. Um, but I also, yeah, this is like, I don't know if you can see oh, this. We nice. have a hi there, but um, do you remember um, uh, Dr. Strangelove, Stanley Kubrick, like the where Slim Pickens is the guy, the cowboy that rides the bomb at the end? Yeah. If you haven't seen the movie, you probably seen yeah, the, you know the who, cowboy riding yeah, the bomb. For sure. So that's that, that on the graffiti written on the bomb for the, for the doomsday device is hi there. So that's that's totally screenshotted and stolen from. So that's there's your Easter egg. I love it. I love these little like hidden messages that are in every bottle. It's amazing. I, sh I should um, hit you guys up for your. So I have to. Um, it's actually giving me a lot of anxiety, but like so shapeshifter, which um, that's our Pinot Gris. We touched on that, but like the first vintage I made was 2018, so I didn't have to think about what to put on the cork. But I need to like order corks in the next week for 2019 because we're bottling, and I'm like. I'm having so much anxiety about what to put on the cork. <laughs> These are the I feel things. like it'll come to you, especially right. with how weird things are right now. I feel like <laughs> it'll come to you. <laughs> so, okay, you have kids. Sorry. I don't know why this is where my mind went, but I'm just going to put it out there. Shapeshifter, have you seen Moana? All right. So The Rock is a shapeshifter as his character. And he always, he says, you're welcome. So pop open the bottle. You're welcome. Yeah, that's pretty good. And it's good like to that. the last glass, right? <laughs> Jamie's like, I'll just take a bottle of wine for that. You're welcome, right? I, I don't know if my ego needs any more stroking, uh, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I am loving Testa. I am, I am just really enjoying this. I think it's like, I love old vines in and Carignan. And, you know, the fact that you've got now I know 85 year plus hearing on is awesome. So yeah, it, your style is great. I think everyone should try to get their hands on a bottle of this. So where do you sell your wines? Like how do you distribute and how does that work? Yeah, so our base wines. Um, so essentially Iconic's kind of second label is Sidekick because we had a heroine. So when we, we made an inexpensive project um, out of Lodi, Sidekick made perfect sense and, and the trademark was available. Funny with these little things you have to think about. So Sidekick is, is by far widely distributed wine. So if you want to find one of my wines, um, you'll most likely see that. that Sidekick sold in, I think I said, 30, 38 states or something. Like we're in almost everywhere but the north, northwest. What about Secret um, Identity? Yeah, and Secret Identity is the, our rosé. Yeah, um, yeah, we, we like that one. That's a great yeah. one. Yeah, I mean, after, after Michael Mara, in terms of getting high on my own supply, that's probably the wine I drink the most. Um, that was yummy. Uh, but we're actually, we've had um, kind of a crazy boom year for 2019, but, um, or released this year, but like we, we're almost sold out of Secret Identity. I think I only have like 10 cases left. Wow. I wonder, because we, we actually had it, I think, for the first time when we went to a Rosé Palooza out here. We had tasted it there. We were like, this is going to be perfect for a podcast episode. Like, let's get it. And I remember, I mean, I've seen it, I think, maybe a couple times since, but I, I don't see it a bunch. And so I wonder, does a lot stay, like, on the West Coast? I'm trying to remember. You know, it's funny. Um, the biggest secret identity customer is in Wisconsin, in the country. We like to um, drink here. You guys have a, there's a restaurant group that does their secret identity by the glass. Oh, I've um, definitely seen it. I know I've seen it on the menu. Um, I know they have a restaurant in downtown Milwaukee, um, but they, I think they have like six or seven restaurants. And I think they, it is like their rosé. It's not rose. hospitality it, 
democracy. Yeah, that sounds right. Is yeah, it? Okay. That group is. Yeah. yeah. So they, um, but yeah, they are, I think these, if you, in terms of a single unit restaurant group or whatever, they, they are the largest purchaser of secret identity in the country. <laughs> well, now I know where to go to get that. If I can't find it, leave it. Leave it to Wisconsin to be the largest consumer or buyer of some sort of alcohol. I mean, it just sounds about right. Yeah, you guys are you guys are intense. I, I got to go to Milwaukee maybe I think two years ago. No, like I was like I, I feel pretty proud of like being able to hold my own and like I did a lot of bar hopping, especially in Milwaukee, and like I was like. Yeah, it's hard to keep up with you, Wisconsinites. I am with you because I actually am from Michigan. And so when I first moved here, I was like, wow, this is a whole nother culture, you know? <laughs> go big or go home. Yeah, it's like there's never a time that you can drink that people would be like, oh, it's not the right time. You could be drinking at 9 a.m. and it's fine. What's it's um, like no judgment. One of my favorite bars I've ever been to was, um, it's in Milwaukee. It's famous for basically being, supposedly being the first place to have a blender behind the bar. Is it called but. Bryant's? Oh, Brian's. Right. Is it Brian's? That could be yeah, it. Yeah, Brian's is one of the most famous bars around here. I just remember I've that never been, it's, like, it's dark and um, yeah, the whole, there's no back bar. Like it, it, the bar has like the most amazing well, like every single thing is like out in front of them, but it's like the well's like seven like bottles deep or something. So like the guy's like leaning way over to hand you your drink and all that. Like, no, it was cool. Like the drinks were great. Like it was just like, I don't know. There's so many random bars around here. You'll be like driving through a neighborhood and you're like, oh, that's a bar. And then, you'll, I mean, it looks like a house, except it's a bar. Like, it's that's funny. something it's I've It's on my short list. There's like, there's like five or six bars that I've been to of traveled and sold my wine. Like, and in the last couple of years, I started going to more cocktail bars because we were doing developing the vermouth and I kept wanting to like ask people's opinions. And, you know, it's funny, wine, the winemaking, I feel like, is, um, you're supposed to be like Moses or something. You come down and you're like, look at this thing I brought. Oh, like it's the most awesome. And like, like I'm not a bartender. I'm a winemaker. And so like, I'm obsessed with this thing, but like, and it's more like, Hey, I made a nail. Can you build a house? Is this a good nail? Can you build a house with this? Like, it's a lot more humble. Like I'm building a tool. Is this a good tool for you to use in cocktails? So you bring samples right. with you, like when you went out and did that research. Yeah, I would. Um, I was like a weird guy that would like sit at the bar and be like, "I got some sketchy bootleg vermouth, baby. Like I made it in my kitchen. Like, you know, tell me if it's any good." Like, <laughs> That's amazing. I feel like around here they'd be like, "Sure." Yeah, most most guys Just are pretty good. Shout out, <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Well, we hope we see you here. You know, when all this is over. Uh, and we're traveling again. We really do hope that you'll, you know, come and visit us in Milwaukee and we can like go to Bryant's and, you know, do yeah, the I, um, thing and do the wine thing. I was, I was supposed to come there this spring uh, before, uh, every, before life got canceled. Yeah. Before exactly. That, that's um, that's a, a perfect thing to say before life got canceled. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we'll, um, but we'll, we'll get back there soon. Uh, hopefully it's, yeah. Sooner than later, and likewise, uh, come out to Napa. You know, it's it's an interesting time here. We have um, it's only about 130, 140,000 people live in the whole valley of Napa, of the whole county, and um, we have something like seven million tourists a year, typically. Oh my God, that's insane! So uh, it is very quiet and very weird here. You know, if if folks, if you feel comfortable, like come out because uh, wineries are going to bend over backwards for you. It's going to be a really fun time to come visit wine country. <laughs> Not a lot of you are. Road so, trip. Uh, exactly. 
So yeah, maybe, maybe we could road trip it. That would be something for sure. That's what my parents live in Colorado. They keep talking about it. And I'm just waiting for them to like show up. I'm like they're retired. I'm like you, they could just they could be here at any moment. It's terrible. You're like, yeah, just come on by. I mean, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. Well, Sue, thanks so much well, for doing thanks. this. Thanks. No, thank you. Let's cheers. So Absolutely. we will cheers to you, man, in your delicious wine. It is delicious and not interesting. I'll give you that. Um, Both of them. <laughs> yep, exactly. So cheers to you. Awesome. And um, we hope to talk soon and have you on the podcast. Not in yeah, the well, hopefully, hopefully um, you know, come fall on the, on the backside of harvest. Um, maybe we'll do a whole uh, martini episode. Oh my God, that would be amazing. I'm, I'm, an, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna get you, I'm gonna get you on the gin and the lemon twist. I'm gonna get you away from that dirty yes. martini. All right, all right. <laughs> you know what? I will take that challenge. Awesome, sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Burke, we will talk to you soon. Sounds great. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform to help spread the DBP word. Check out our website and blog at dbpcheers.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dbpcheers or on the Drunk Bitches Podcast Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. So send your questions, comments, and fun wine or topic ideas to dbpcheers at gmail.com. Until next time. Cheers from the girls of DBP.